The Nature Podcast is supported by Nature Plus, a flexible monthly subscription that grants immediate online access to the science journal Nature and over 50 other journals from the Nature Portfolio. More information at go.nature.com slash plus. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. In an experiment. Why is light so fast? Like, it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speaks. I find this not only refreshing, but, but at some level astounding. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week we'll be hearing how performance art could help researchers perform science. And we'll be shining a light on chiral chemistry. I'm Shamni Bundell. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. These days, it's hard to escape the word interdisciplinary. While most modern researchers don't have quite the variety of interests as certain famous Victorian polymaths, there's certainly more collaboration happening between different scientific subject areas. But it's not just collaborations between scientific disciplines that are being explored. This week in Nature, we've got an essay in our Books and Arts section looking at what researchers can learn from artists and performers, and vice versa. One of the essay's co-authors is Roger Kneebone, a surgeon and general practitioner by training, now Professor of Surgical Education and Engagement Science at Imperial College London. Roger dropped by the studio along with Will Houston, a magician who has a PhD in Victorian magic literature. The two of them chatted about what the worlds of medicine and science can learn from performance, magic and even cooking. Roger began by talking about the performance of a medical consultation. I've been in the world of medicine ever since I qualified in in 1977. But as I became more experienced, I came to see the consultation itself as a kind of performance. And that's where, when I met some magicians a while ago, a penny dropped with me that there was an awful lot of stuff that I could learn from other expert performers who deal in this case with a with a very small audience if I thought of myself as a performer as a doctor and will I I know that you do a lot of work with very small audiences yeah absolutely one of the most common places for someone to perform magic I suppose is uh, in a close-up setting working with two or three people at a time showing them card tricks coin tricks and that sort of thing and in those settings people don't necessarily know what you're doing are you going to do something that's fun for them are you some sort of con man are you somebody who's going to make fun of them uh, they don't really know so those same sort of interpersonal dynamics i guess come into play a little because you get those in the consulting room as well i mean you know, people come and, and see you and they've never met and, and they're often very anxious the skills i think of making a connection with somebody and then moving the conversation forward one of the things that struck me when i when i first saw you work is the way that you are very skillful in establishing a connection while making it seem completely natural and effortless but I know from my own experience that making things seem natural and effortless takes a lot of effort. Yeah, absolutely. So you 
you don't want somebody to feel, I think, that they're in an incredibly contrived and peculiar situation uh, or that you're there just sort of blindly going through something you've practiced loads of times. And so you have to make sure you're working with the person and aware of what they're doing and how they're acting. And you certainly have an idea of where you're trying to go with something, what the end of the trick is, what point you're hoping to reach. But you never know quite what's going to happen along the way. So the work that we've done about looking at the consultation as performance really made me think that there are all kinds of insights that people in one profession, in my case medicine, can gain from people in completely different areas of practice. Mm. A year or so ago, I know you took part in a symposium I organised at Imperial College London, where we brought together about 65 people from very, very different backgrounds to explore with one another what they actually do. And there we had scientists and clinicians and artists and performers. And an awful lot of people found that they had unexpected areas of similarity whether they were restoring statues in the V&A Museum or whether they were manipulating tiny insects under the microscope or doing things in a chemistry laboratory. And I know that you do things that require great skill and delicacy and manipulation. But I know that you've also, you've got a science background as well yourself, haven't you, an engineering background. Yeah, and I wondered bit, if, yes. that, if that made sense to you as, a, as another point of, of sort of bridging. I did a mechanical engineering degree to start with and very much liked the world of magic and did magic tricks, but never really thought the two could cross over. And then it was only really afterwards that I started getting more interested in the magic world, did a PhD based on Victorian magic literature, and then started to find, actually, there's lots of interesting stuff where the two cross. I rather wish there had been somebody saying, you know what, these things can inform each other. Although we talk about performing operations, we talk about performing experiments, I think you know people don't always follow that thought through. But when I started exploring whether these ideas I had noticed in my world of medicine might also play out in, in laboratory science, I discovered that there were all sorts of similarities there that I hadn't thought of. So you know, people in chemistry laboratories having to work with very precise measurement and, and exact temperatures and, and mixtures of things and close observation, all those skills seem to me to be mirrored very closely by what uh, happens in, in, in high-end chefs' kitchens. Mm. And interestingly, the, the symposium I mentioned has now led on to a, a collaboration and we're going to be getting undergraduate chemistry students to spend time learning culinary techniques in a kitchen and getting culinary students to spend time in a chemistry laboratory to see whether each can learn from the other. And of course, the wonderful thing about that, I suppose, is if I'm doing something which is about magic, I have a feeling of obligation to be good and to sort of know something about it and be able to do it to a certain extent. But if I'm spending time with somebody else, I've been working with a puppeteer, for example, recently, I have no expectation of being good at puppetry. And perhaps I can learn more because I'm not worried about proving myself in the same way. And, and that's exactly the case with the, uh, with the chemical kitchen, as we're calling this project which has been funded by Imperial College London as a way of helping chemistry students particularly to learn these techniques that, that these days they may not have learnt much or indeed at all at school. And this is a way of making sure that they gain those skills exactly as you say, without them feeling embarrassed in front of a chemistry professor if they can't do a chemical experiment because no one expects them to be able to make a good souffle <laughs> or vice versa. And I think that particularly as the school curriculum is becoming scooped out and 
opportunities to perform and to do things with your hands are, are being systematically eliminated. I think it's getting more and more important that we give people the opportunities to make these connections with people they might not, not otherwise think of meeting. And so the collaboration that we've developed between magic and medicine seems to me to be an example of something that has a much wider set of implications. Mm. And a particularly exciting one for me because my PhD was looking at a, a man who wrote a book about how to do magic uh, in the Victorian period, not because everyone should be magicians, but rather because he thought magic would teach people useful skills for the rest of their lives. And that's something which sort of took off a little bit then, faded away in the intervening 100, 120 years. And it's rather exciting to think that maybe the idea of using magic to help look at other things and examine other areas is there. And also, of course, that magic can become much richer by interacting with other areas, by finding out more about other things, and by using some of that in the way it develops. That was Will Houston chatting with Roger Kneebone. You can read Roger's essay over at nature.com slash news. If you'd like to see a longer discussion between the two on the lessons that medical consultations could learn from performance magic, you can find one over on Gresham College's website, where Roger has been giving a series of talks. And I'll put a link to that on our show page over at nature.com slash nature slash podcast. Later in the show, Holly Else will be joining us with an update from an AI conference. That's coming up in the news chat. Now, though, Anna Nagel is here with this week's research highlights. I'd imagine that dissecting a mosquito takes some pretty fine motor skills. But how about dissecting half a million mosquitoes? That's what a team from the University of California did in a bid to uncover new compounds to treat malaria. When an infected mosquito bites someone, plasmodium parasites enter the person's bloodstream and first move to the liver where they mature. The California team wanted to target the parasite at this early stage in its life cycle, which meant painstakingly removing plasmodium parasites from nearly half a million mosquitoes. They then mixed the parasites with human liver cells and pitted them against various chemical compounds to see how they fared. Out of more than 500,000 compounds, almost 6,000 quashed the pathogen without damaging the liver cells and could form the basis for new malaria prevention drugs. Read more on that research in Science. Did you know that geckos can race across the surface of water at impressive speeds? Well, now scientists have used high-speed cameras to work out exactly how they manage it. Many species can travel along water's surface. Lightweight creatures like insects make use of surface tension, while some larger animals like basilisk lizards use vigorous water-slapping techniques. Geckos, it turns out, use a mix of approaches. Scientists at Rockefeller University in New York found that geckos use all four limbs to slap and stroke the water's surface, creating underwater air pockets that propel them forwards. They also wiggle their semi-submerged bodies from side to side to generate thrust and get a boost from the water's surface tension. This combination of techniques means that geckos can speed across a body of water at around 61 centimetres per second. That's faster than a young alligator can swim. You can find that research in Current Biology. Now, one of the nice things about working at Nature is you get to hang around with a lot of people who are very excited about the goings-on in their particular field, and they're usually pretty happy to tell you about it too. One such person is Bryden Labaye, 
a senior editor for the Nature Journal. I got him down to the studio last week to fill us in on some cool new research from the field of organic chemistry. So you have a new paper mm-hmm. that um, you've accepted for publication in Nature, and it's one that you were quite excited about. What, what have they actually done in this in this paper? So um, they've done something that people couldn't do before and didn't know was possible before. So what they've done is they've managed to take a mixture of enantiomers, which is basically mirror image versions of the same compound, the same molecule, and they've managed to convert one to the other. And and this idea of having different enantiomers, let, let's explain that a little bit. What is an enantiomer? Sure. So I think the easiest way of explaining it and the one they usually tell people at school or university is uh, it's like having two hands, right? So you have a left hand and a right hand and they are mirror images of each other. So molecules are exactly the same. They can exist as two hands of each other and they're called enantiomers. So one of the important things is that if you take your left hand, you can't just rotate it and get the exact same pattern as exactly, your right hand. Exactly, yeah. Because your thumb's sticking out and yeah. the palm is in the wrong direction. So there are molecules like that as well, and they're called chiral molecules if they have these. Exactly, yeah. So variations. a molecule is chiral if it has another form that's a mirror image, and those two forms are called enantiomers. And why is that so important? So biology is inherently chiral. Um, so, for example, if you think about your DNA, that's you know the classic right-handed helix of DNA, that's determined by the fact that the nucleic acids that make up DNA, they induce it to form a right-handed helix. Likewise, your proteins are made up of amino acids, and they also form helices, single helices, and they form left-handed helices. So if I had the, the wrong enantiomer mm-hmm. or in my DNA or my proteins, the chemistry would be different. Exactly. It wouldn't fold properly. It wouldn't be able to perform its function the same way. Why is this a problem for chemists? Because biology is inherently chiral, this means that if we make a drug, any kind of chemical to interact with biology, if we make the wrong enantiomer, the wrong hand, it won't have the same effect. So one really obvious example of this is limonene, which is a um, compound that's found in citrus fruits. So when you have one enantiomer of limonene, that smells like oranges, smells like lemons, that's the citrus smell. But if you have the other version of limonene, the other handedness, that smells like industrial solvent. And that's what it's actually used for. No way. Yeah. So these molecules look almost exactly the same, but they're mirror image of each other and they have very different physical properties and biological properties. So when biology is making all these molecules, its natural processes end up with all of one kind. But in chemistry, you'd usually end up with 50-50 of each enantiomer. So how do people get around that currently? So normally when you make a, a chiral molecule, you start from you know starting material, another molecule, and you transform it and you impart that chirality on it. Okay, and you form one enantiomer, and that's done normally using quite expensive uh, metal-based catalysts. And if you don't have the catalyst set up right, you won't get one enantiomer, you'll just get the mixture, and then you might have bad side effects. And there are several examples in the literature where the other enantiomer has bad side effects. So what have these guys done uh, now that's different? In this paper, what they do is they take this mixture of enantiomers of a molecule called an allene, and they effectively can resolve that mixture to just one enantiomer, but of the exact same thing. And this is something that people didn't know was possible before. So this means that if you get to the end of your synthesis of making a drug that's chiral, 
you could potentially go all the way through with your mixture and then just at the end convert it into the right enantiomer that you want to uh, to work as a drug. So with normal metal catalysts that people use to create one-handed chiral molecules, you're starting off with non-chiral molecules and you're adding this chirality and you're adding the one-handedness, one version of that. Exactly. Whereas in this one, you're starting with already chiral molecules and just sure. flipping half of them over. Absolutely, yeah. So the, the importance is that it doesn't matter that you have this mixture because then you can go on to convert it later. And the mixtures are actually quite easy to create. Exactly. And how have this team achieved it if, if normal metal catalysts can't do it? So the importance here is that they've used light. So the catalyst is activated by light. So what happens is the catalyst absorbs light and then it will transfer that light energy to the molecule. And that gives the molecule enough energy to convert one enantiomer to the other. So this is going to be for sort of pharmaceutical industry and drug development and that kind of thing. This is going to be potentially a new way of making existing drugs or maybe a more efficient way of making them. Sure. And maybe we'll be able to make compounds that we've so far just not really been able to make. Exactly. And is it just drugs? Are there any other elements of the world in which chirality is important? You know, obviously the whole world is chemical, right? So anything to do with materials or any other processes where you're you're doing chemical manufacturing. So for example, in polymer chemistry, which obviously you use in plastics and things like that, the chirality of those polymers can be used used to affect what their strength is, how bendable they are. And this is just the first demonstration of this new technique. You know, how far does it have to go before industry and, and people can actually make use of it? So one of the limitations for industry is the use of light. So light is actually, because of its penetration, that makes it difficult to use on a very big scale. So if you have a really big reactor, you know, tons and tons of chemicals being made, to try and get light into there is a problem. So this is something that we also have to overcome. So maybe we'll have vats full of little LEDs. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, at the moment, light-based chemistry is a very hot topic. The last 10 years or so have seen an explosion in what we call photocatalysis. Because what it's allowed us to do, as in this paper, is explore completely new kinds of reactivity that were just not really accessible to us before. That was Bryden Labai, journal editor here at Nature talking about a paper which you can find at nature.com forward slash nature, along with a news and views to explain some more of that lovely chiral chemistry. Right then, listeners, it's uh, it's that time of the show. It's actually the penultimate news chat of 2018. And I'm joined here in the studio by Holly Else, one of the reporters here at Nature. Hi, Holly. Hi. A um, couple of stories today. And the first one is about AI and uh, a recent conference you were at. Yes. So I travelled to Montreal last week to attend the NeurIPS conference, which is one of the biggest AI conferences in the world. And there were two big announcements, I understand it. Uh, what were they? Yeah, one was a big announcement from researchers in Europe who want to keep AI going on the continent because they fear they're losing a lot of people to North America and China. Mm, and so what are they doing to kind of uh, prevent this flow of researchers to other parts of the world? So they've set up a group called ELIS, which stands for the European Laboratory for Learning and Intelligent Systems. And this is kind of like uh, an organisation that's going to be based on EMBO, the European Molecular Biology Organisation. Um, and what they're going to do is coordinate better AI research in Europe. 
So is this something that needs sort of better coordination? Is it, is it not uh, not in such a good state as we stand at the moment? Well, there are still some leading labs in Europe, but the danger is that a lot of the industry and PhD programs, for example, actually the top ones are in America now. And what this group fear is that they're actually sort of draining the resources out of Europe. So taking the students, taking the money and developing the technology outside of Europe. Well, it's quite a broad ambition, it sounds like. What, what sort of things will this include specifically, Holly? So they're going to set up a few research centres. They weren't able to tell us exactly where they would be yet, but there's definitely interest in Germany and Austria. And they're also planning to create a pan-European PhD programme. And they'll also create some kind of focal point for industry. A lot of European companies um, might need AI for the future and perhaps aren't, aren't so developed in it as their counterparts in the States or China. Right. And, uh, and I guess the important question is who, who's going to pay for it? Well, we don't know yet. That's the big question. So the announcement at NeurIPS was basically just to say that they're forming a professional association in order to do these things. Um, but they weren't able to tell us where they're going to get the money from yet. Well, I guess wait and see on that one then. But uh, I know the other thing uh, was related to ethics. And it's something that we've talked about on the podcast before, you know, the ethics of machine learning and AI and what have you. Uh, What was announced at the conference? So the University of Montreal and the Quebec Research Fund came together a year ago and decided to write some principles that can help guide researchers to do AI ethically. And what they did over the past year is consult the public and also different groups like policymakers, sociologists, you know, public organisations about AI and, and what the future will hold. And together they came up with these 10 principles known as the Montreal Declaration. And a lot of it is about fairness, equality, responsible AI development. Really, the, the main gist is that AI is a technology that should benefit everybody in society, not just some few. I mean, is this the first time this has been attempted? I mean, it it seems like, you know, trying to get these core principles is is an important thing to have done when we started off working with AI. Yeah, so there are other guidelines, um, but these have really been devised by the researchers themselves. So this is the first time the scientists have actually gone into the community and asked the people who really are the ones who are going to be affected by AI in the long term, um, what they think and how they think that technology should be developed. Mm. I mean, I, I guess the key with these things is, it's, you know, it's all very well to sort of develop these guidelines, but putting them into practice, I guess, can, can be the trick. Uh, how are these going to be implemented and, and, uh, and what are researchers thinking about them? So at the moment, about 500 people have signed up to these guidelines. Most of them are Canadian or French researchers. So there's obviously some way to go in terms of publicising this to the wider community. Well, Holly, let's move on to our second story this week. Uh, and it's also from a conference, but a, but a very different conference and one that's going on right now. Yeah, so this is the conference of the American Geophysical Union and some research that was presented there suggests that East Antarctica is melting much faster than people originally thought. I mean, it seems rare that we get some good news from Antarctica and this doesn't sound like good news. What what specifically has been going on? Well, people thought the east side of Antarctica was relatively stable. Um, But since the early 2010s, the height of the glaciers is falling by about half a metre a year. Crikes. Okay. well, I mean, a couple of questions from me here. I mean, one... We talked about East Antarctica, which seems kind of broad. Where, where specifically are we looking? And, and two, how does one go about measuring the height of a glacier? Presumably you're not just there with a, with a metre ruler or something like that. Yeah, so to answer your first question, the, the researchers specifically were, were looking at an area called Vincennes Bay, which has four glaciers in it. Uh, and how did they do it? Well, they used data from two satellites, one run by NASA, another one by the European Space Agency. 
and they used this data to create a 3D view of, of what the surface of each glacier looked like and how they thickened and thinned over time. And they found that in the 1990s, uh, the glaciers shrank while they shed some ice, um, but then they bulked up again in the year 2000s. And then from 2010 onwards, they started to thin again. And this is the 0.5 metres a year that we're currently seeing? Yes. I mean, it does seem like there's been a little bit of variation there, sort of up and down, but where do we think this is going next? Well, a lot of this comes down to the temperature of the water around East Antarctica, um, and that changes every year and can be based on factors like wind speed and direction or whether there's sea ice in the vicinity. But in general, climate scientists think that the warmer waters are going to make their way closer to East Antarctica more regularly in the future. And that probably doesn't bode too well for the glaciers. No, indeed not. Well, Holly, thank you for joining me. And listeners, if you'd like more of the latest science news, head over to nature.com slash news. And that's it for this week's show. But you have to tune in next week because we have a holiday show. And I'm very much looking forward to that. Yeah, me too. But listeners, while you wait for that, if you'd like to see magician Will Houston performing a bit of magic here in our studio, head over to our Twitter feed at Nature Podcast, where you'll find him in GIF form. Yeah, I've seen those GIFs. They're crazy. I'm sure you must have manipulated the video somehow, Ben. No, it's all magic and it's all amazing. I'm Benjamin Thompson. And I'm Sharmini Bundell. dive into the world of science with Nature Plus. From the vastness of the distant star systems to the intricacies of infectious diseases due to climate change, we've got you covered. Enjoy access to over 55 cutting-edge journals, breaking scientific news, and over a thousand new articles every month. Whether you're a seasoned researcher or just curious, Nature Plus simplifies complex studies. Plus, it's all available right at your fingertips on nature.com. Nature Plus the key to unlocking the world's most significant scientific advances. Subscribe today at go.nature.com slash plus. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.